Uh, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. You know, it really, it's easy to say that as a speaker, um, but it really is great to be here for a whole host of reasons. It really struck me last night. I, had a, I got a little, uh, a good Yiddish word, I got a little verklempt last night. You know, when I sat there sitting next to Steve, which always makes me a little weepy, but when I sat next to Steve and I looked and I saw all those young people just longing, and, and some less young people, um, I try not to use the O word, right? Um, listening with such intensity to learn more about the Word of God, even though they had already heard two messages that day, was very encouraging to me. And one of the beauties of this conference is that some of you I've known now for uh, close to 20 years, and we love you immensely, and we appreciate your hospitality to us. Uh, I know we've already been booked up for all of our meals, and we're grateful for that. Um, but just being able to spend time together. We just had a wonderful time uh, at the Dixons last night, and to, to see uh, David and Tori despite having three young children and all these things going on to host us all. And they, they looked relaxed and it was wonderful. It was a, a wonderful time uh, with the Lord's people. So we appreciate being here very much. Not to mention, of course, this absolutely gorgeous venue. I hope you've been taking time to enjoy it. Privilege of a long, long run this morning made out to Mirror Lake. I don't know if you've ever been out to Mirror Lake. It's stunning. Uh, and it was uh, just a beautiful day. Turn your Bibles, please, with me to the book of Ezra. Now, if you don't have a handout from yesterday, if you weren't here, one of my lovely assistants here will um, provide you one. If you put your hand up, um, uh, you will be provided one of the uh, handouts. <clears throat> As we turn to the, uh, the book of Ezra, um, I, I want to remind us, we're going to turn to chapter 4 while you're turning there, that what we've been trying to do, or what we're planning to do in the sessions attributed to me is to not only just give you an overview of the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job, but Lord willing, have you see how they fit in the greater context of the nation of Israel and even the greater context of the universe. As we come to appreciate that, that nothing happens to the Lord by chance. He knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And we saw how the Jewish nation, sadly, were doing well in certain venues, made a mistake. And the Lord came to the rescue. And they seemed to be repeatedly making that same mistake over and over again. And yet the Lord was gracious and patient with them. So yesterday we tried to give you a little bit of the context of that history. As a quick reminder, I know many of you talked to me afterwards that you enjoyed having a bit of this global view. Even the birds are enjoying it. Um, that uh, you know, Adam lived roughly 4,000 B.C., Noah 3,000 B.C., Abraham 2,000 B.C., and David 1,000 B.C. And then between Abraham and David at 1500 BC, we have Moses. And at 500-ish, we have Nehemiah. And in that sphere of a thousand years from 1500 BC to 500 BC, we see so much of uh, the Old Testament found. Where, if you will, the tape is slowed down a little bit so we can get more detail. And we saw how on two major occasions, the nation of Israel were, if you will, brought back into their land. And on both of those occasions, they had been taken away from the land or were not in their land by virtue of disobedience. And that disobedience took that three-step path that we came to appreciate yesterday, which was the disobedience of the priests, the disobedience of the prophets, and the disobedience of the kings, which reflects the, social, the, the, the religious, uh, moral, and social fabric of life. Now we saw that in any nation, 
there's that first decline. If you take out what's right and what's wrong from a spiritual standpoint, it's going to affect morality. And when morality declines in a country, before long, there's social injustice. And just like it was at the end of the book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Isn't that literally where we've landed today? There's not a question of what's right and what's wrong. It's what's right for you and what's right for me and what's wrong for you and what's wrong for, and what's wrong for me. And that, of course, is not the standard that God has set. We spent a little bit of time then towards the end of the message yesterday thinking a bit about Ezra as a character, as a person. And I'd like to focus a little bit more on him today and his work uh, as we complete this first book of Ezra. But let's turn to chapter 4. You may remember that immediately prior to this, we talked about this miraculous situation that after the, the Lord's people had been taken into captivity into Babylon, that a pagan king Cyrus made a decree that they could return. And who could have imagined that? How many times has that happened in your life where you just scratch your head and you say, how can it be possible that the Lord brings this person into our life at this time? And we know it's of the Lord. And it's reassuring to us because if the Lord can do something like that, imagine what he can do in your life. If he can convert the heart of a pagan Persian king and free people who are under his captivity to return to build the land, imagine how he can tackle the, 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 the challenges and the difficulties you face every day. And so Ezra has, is, and, and you can see the momentum here, Ezra's going to go back. We, we've talked a little bit yesterday about the twofold uh, rebuilding here that it started with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was going to focus on the temple. Ezra was really focusing on uniting the people with the word of God, right? A building, as it were, is not going to unite a people. What were the two questions we asked yesterday? Can the minority be right? And is unity possible? You say to yourselves, if we just built a better building in our assembly, everything will happen right. If we just fix the kitchen, if we just uh, fix this, this open area, then people will flood in, hundreds will be saved. Uh, and you don't say that, but sometimes we, we sort of think that, don't we? And I'm not minimizing the importance of rebuilding the temple. So Rubbable's role was fundamental here. But what the people needed was not just the, the, the focal point of the physical place. They needed to rally around the person of God. So it is with us. And in our assemblies, we rally around the person of the Lord Jesus. He's the center of the building. How sad when we read the Church of Laodicea where the Lord's knocking from the outside. What a backward situation. So he's going to unite the people by bringing them together with the Word of God. And the focus will be the Word of God. No shocker, no surprise, here in chapter 4, we run into trouble. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you. Now, I don't want to get too fanciful here, but I mean, these would have been smooth-talking people. I mean, no disrespect to anyone who sells cars, but, you know, this is like the, the, the car salesman, why don't we work together on this project, Zerubbabel? I mean, you, we know inherently that they were not looking for the best interest of the Lord's people. For we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esher had on king of Asher, which brought us hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, 
Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, hath commanded us. I won't get into all of the detail here, but this is not the first time this kind of thing has happened. I think of the compromise that Pharaoh came up with when Moses said, let my people go. Do you remember that negotiation for a while before they finally left, when God ultimately had to harden Pharaoh's heart? You want an interesting study sometime, look at the compromises that Pharaoh tried to make with Israel. One of them was, why can't you worship the Lord right here? I mean, are our gods really that different than your gods? Like, do you always have to be such a stick in the mud? Like, why are you so unique? Right? Can't, can't we just all work together? Can't we all just do the same thing? Your God's here, my God's there, his God's there, her God's there. And we all kind of just work together. And on the one hand, like I said last night, young people, it makes you want to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and everything's great, right? But it's not the truth. They were compromising. They were trying to say, let us do it with you because really your temple is no different than our temple. Of course, if you study it further with Pharaoh, he had other very serious uh, uh, compromises that he wanted as well. He wanted them to, 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 to leave their business behind or leave their children behind. And, uh, and those are compromises that the world wants to make with us today too. You know, oh yeah, you can serve the Lord, but, but your business practices should be like the world's practices. Or your children should uh, be participants in the, uh, what the world wants for your children as opposed to what the Lord wants for your children. We need to be very careful that those same compromises don't overtake us today. So, so it starts, but this is not the end of it. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. So if they weren't going to join them and somehow maybe get in, infiltrate like a mole and take it down, now they made it difficult for them. And look at this. They went even further. For all you political types who love the campaign and all this kind of stuff, look at this next verse. I mean, look how, how many hundreds of years ago this was written, how relevant it is today. Then the people of, uh, sorry, verse 5, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even unto the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. They hired lobbyists, right? I mean, literally, that's what they're doing. To, to frustrate the situation. And again, I don't have time to go through every, because hopefully you can study this book a bit more on your own. I mean, this was a classic political situation. I mean, this is, this is almost like what, what some of the things we've seen over this last year in our own government happening. There were, there were you know, motion for bills and there was, uh, you know, uh, stopgap measures to try and get, the, there was a sit-in. I mean, literally, we find here they had to go back and defend the letters that the king had given to them because they were questioning those letters. And they stalled the work of God for long periods of time. You know, verse uh, 11, this is the copy of the letter that they sent unto him, even unto Artsartes the king, thy servants, uh, thy servants, the men of the side of the river, and at such a time. Be it known unto the king that the Jews came up from thee uh, to us, are come unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and the bad city, and have set up the walls thereof, and joined the foundations. So now what they're doing is, now that if they couldn't stop them by working with them, if they couldn't stop them by preventing them or hiring lobbyists, now they're going to the highest political level to try and say, look, what they're, what they're doing is going to really hurt everybody here. And the reason to emphasize all this is that whenever there is going to be, and I use the word not in the, in the world sense of the word, but in the spiritual sense of the word, successful endeavor amongst the people of God, there will be opposition. 
Am I right or am I right? It's like my New Yorker friends. They don't give you a choice. Am I right or am I right? I'm right. right? Um, But it's true, isn't it? And not to make light of it, but it's the truth. You almost have to be aware of a situation where things are going so spiritually well that there's no opposition, that there's no challenge. It makes us a little nervous at times. You go from Genesis to Revelation. Whenever there was success for the purposes of God, there was going to be opposition. We'll see it again tomorrow when we talk about Nehemiah. I mean, at the end of the day, they were building bricks with one hand and with a sword in the other, they were fighting off the enemy. That's not really how I want to build a wall. But if God commissions me to do it, that's how I'm going to do it. And so there was opposition after opposition after opposition. But they handled it with grace. And one of the things that we see both Zerubbabel and Ezra do, and this I think is an important principle. I I, I sort of intimated it yesterday when we talked about how Daniel was willing to go to Babylon University and function in that pagan environment, but he drew lines as to what he would allow himself to do from a spiritual standpoint. Both Zerubbabel and Ezra leveraged their political situation. They went back to the letter and said, look, we have it here in writing from the king that we can do this. We have a permit that lets us have this meeting here in Yosemite, right? You've taken the appropriate, socially acceptable, and morally responsible steps to let this happen. But at the same time, don't we pray every year? that the Lord's going to allow us to have this conference. So the danger of the Christian is to go to either extreme, right? The danger of the Christian is to say uh, on one extreme, well, we need to run the assembly like we run a business, right? We need the right financial people taking care of the finances. We need the right social people taking care of the social things. And we just need to run it like a business, right? We have an executive board. We've got uh, people uh, chairing all these different committees. Now, I'm not saying you can't have committees and things like that in your assembly. But we understand how the business model works. And remember, the design of the assembly preceded any business model, right? And it's not to say that we can't apply some of the principles of business. You may have a, a, a brother or sister in your assembly who's an accountant who's really good with funds. Well, maybe they can help facilitate the bank account and so on for the assembly so it's done right. I'm not saying that that's not possible. But to go to one extreme and just say, you know what, things aren't successful in our assembly. I'm going to take the template that we used at our office retreat to figure out how to get things going and just bring it into the assembly and do that. It's a dangerous premise, isn't it? By contrast, there's also an extreme dangerous premise on the other side. To just say, you know what, God's totally in control. Let's just sit back and watch him do it. Many of you have heard me give this example before. I like to use the example of the miracles of the Lord Jesus. You notice how many times the Lord Jesus employed someone to be a participant in his miracle? They had their part, and he had his part. He raised Lazarus from the dead, made them take his grave clothes off. Don't you think the Lord could have raised Lazarus from the dead without his grave clothes on? (laughs) He could have. But it shows this partnership that we have with God. So as we were saying to the young people last night, you don't just say to yourself, okay, well, um, how's the Lord going to use me? I'm just going to wait for one day for this epiphanous moment for a lightning bolt to come down from heaven and God's going to say, thou shalt do this, Joe. No. We leverage the opportunities that we have. We use the skills that we have. We search for the spiritual gift that we have and we use it for the greater glory of God. We don't just say, you know what, we're going to have a big gospel campaign and we're going to see dozens of souls saved. 
Lord, bring the people in. No. We say we're going to have a gospel campaign and let's work diligently hard to bring the people in and then let the Lord save them. Notice that the Lord never asked during those miracles for the people to do the miraculous bit. He didn't say, okay, Lazarus, let's make a deal. You raise yourself from the dead, I'll take your clothes off. What? <laughs> but it was impossible, right? He raised a little girl from the dead, told her parents to give her something to eat. Take up thy bed and walk. So he gave him the miracle part of giving the strength to be able to carry his bed, but he made him carry the bed. Now go dip in the Jordan. Go do the... Frequently, the participant part was, always, was such that the, the human dimension had to contribute. But the Lord did the miraculous bit. And that's exactly what happens here with Zerubbabel and Ezra. And Ezra says, I'm going to do what God has empowered me to do from a human standpoint and I'll let him take care of the miraculous. The Lord's disciples took a while to understand this, you know, where, where they're like, oh, can we call fire down from heaven like Elijah did and, and consume these prophets? And the Lord was pretty gentle with them, reminding them of what their role was, that they were to be spiritual leaders, not invoking uh, dangerous uh, miracles. Turn over to chapter 7 for a moment, please. Chapter 7. Verse, uh, verse um, that's, that's for time's sake. Come to verse 7. Or verse 6, I'm sorry. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given him. And the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And we'll talk more about this concept when we talk to, about Nehemiah. And there went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests and of the Levites and the sinners and the porters and the Nethanim unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh month of the year of the king. For upon the first day of the month began he to go up from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For, Isra, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Go down to verse 27. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and hath extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened as the mighty hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered together out of Israel the chief men to go up uh, with me. Go down to verse, uh, chapter 8 and verse 15. And I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava. And there abode uh, we in tents three days. And I viewed the people and the priests and found there none of the sons of Levi. Then, si then sent I for Eliezer, for Ariel, for Shemaiah, for Elnathan, and for Jareb, and for Elnathan, and for Nathan, and for Zechariah, and for Meshullam, chief men, also uh, Joarib, and for Elnathan, men, men of understanding. And I sent them with commandment unto Edo, the chief uh, at the uh, place Casaphia. And I told them that they should say unto Edo and to his brethren, uh, the Nethanim, at the place of Casaphia, that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mahli, 
the sons of Levi, the sons of Israel, and uh, Sherebiah, <clears throat> with the sons and his brethren, 18. And Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, the sons of Merari, his brethren, and their sons, 20. Also of the Nethanim, whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim, all of them expressed by name, were expressed by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Hava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all of our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way because we had spoken unto the king saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this and he was entreated for us. And I read that lengthy portion to understand that, you know, it wasn't just that Ezra walked into this perfect situation and said everything was great. He walked in, he said, wait a minute, we got a problem in the priesthood. It's not set up right. We need the right people in this position. So Ezra had taken his experience and his understanding of the word of God and appreciated that not anyone can serve in the role of the priest. And it speaks today to us and elders in particular, if I can speak to the elders for a moment. As individuals are appointed to do everything from being a Sunday school teacher to minister from the pulpit to work in the background, there is a, a genuine spiritual responsibility in making those decisions. It isn't a political framework where we just say, well, you know, uh, John and Susie Smith haven't been involved much, so the best way to get them involved is to put them into this program, even if they're not really qualified for it or prepared to do it or wanting to do it. You know, we have this, this notion sometimes in the, in the business world that, you know, we've got to include everybody, everybody's got a, a place, everyone's got to have to have a title. Well, God's not interested per se in titles, and neither was Ezra. Ezra was interested in the Lord blessing his people. And the Lord being preeminent amongst his people. And you as elders, God bless you for the work that you and your wives do in supporting the assemblies that we go to. It's challenging. But what I, li what I like about the detail of Ezra's life, he wasn't this, as I mentioned yesterday, this really intellectual, brilliant scholar who could put the books of the word of God together and just sort of sit up in a podium somewhere and not be practical. He went right down in detail. That's why I read all those incomprehensible names so that you could see that he was right in there with him, choosing this person, appointing this person, helping direct the people of God so that the right people were doing their jobs. Well, before I close, let's look at these in summary, the major themes that you have here in your handout um, uh, to close off this book. Number one, the word of God. Uh, Ezra was a scribe who meditated on the Word of God and was able to try, uh, apply truths previously given. He was not only willing to think it in his head or read it in his head, he was willing to do something. As we always pray, Lord, help us not to be hearers of the Word only, but to be doers also. Well, to be a doer, you've got to be a hearer. Uh, Ricky asked last night if I could give the young people a challenge. I, I even gave them a, a choice of two challenges. And, and with, with uh, Ricky's uh, agreement, maybe I'll give the challenge to the whole group. You good with that, bro? All right. So the challenge to the young people last night was one of two things. Option number one, uh, as it takes about 60 hours to read the Bible, roughly 40, 45 hours Old Testament, 15 uh, hours New Testament, I suggest that you challenge yourself that between now and next year's Yosemite Conference, 
in 52 weeks that you read through the Bible. 15 minutes a day. We all know what it's like to be busy. I'm relatively busy. But we could find 15 minutes a day. Option number two is you choose 12 books of the Bible and you assign one to each month. And I would choose the books that are what I sometimes call the 15-minuteers. You know, so perhaps many of the, the, uh, the minor prophets and some of the shorter epistles. And for that month, so let's say you've chosen Galatians for the month of August. Well, for the month of August, you read Galatians from start to finish without interruption, without stopping at the end of each chapter. Just read it continuously as one single letter every day of that month. So 30 times you will have read through Galatians. And then, then in September, you might choose Hosea, and you're going to read Hosea every day for that month. So between now and next year's Yosemite Conference, Lord willing, if we're not in heaven, that you will have, I would suggest, a significantly better understanding of 12 books of the Bible. Do that after a while, you'll get through the whole of it. And one of the reasons why I push that, I think, is that reading something over and over and over again in that context allows you to see the structure that the Lord has given to us in that book that is beyond chapter divisions. But of course, it's not just about knowing it here. It's about applying it. Ask yourself as you read through it, how am I applying it? And Lord, help us to be more like Ezra. We don't hear a lot about Ezra, but Ezra, as we said yesterday, was likely the man really who compiled the whole New Testament together and was able uh, to be used of God for that. Number two, we learn of the sovereignty of God. We've mentioned this already. It was a Gentile king who gives the decree, empowers the return, and even funds it. Can you imagine? The, the, the Lord allowed this to happen, but the people didn't have the funds. They didn't have the ability. We'll see the same thing again with Nehemiah. When Nehemiah asks the king, can you let me go back? Oh yeah, and by the way, can you pay for my trip? Can you imagine asking your boss that? But he did. Because God was in it. And the Lord miraculously did so. But you know, God, as I said here, in His sovereignty, although He plans every last detail, although He wanted to see the temple rebuilt, although He wanted to see the walls rebuilt, He knew that what He really wanted to rebuild the most were the hearts of the people. God's not interested in big conferences, although we love big conferences. He is interested in them, yes. I don't mean that He's not interested in them. But He's more interested in you. It's your heart that matters here this week. Not just the logistics of things. That's the kind of God that we have. We have a personal God. I love that. He cares for me and loves me. There are details of your life that no one else on the planet knows. He knows every one of them. And He cares for every one of them. Lesson number three, restoration and revival. Well, if they were going to start this revival, remember we mentioned the revival or the decline always starts spiritual and then moral and then social. Well, they had to rebuild them in that order as well. So it was critical that the, the altar be replaced, the temple be the first. We'll even see when we talk about the walls of Jerusalem, uh, we'll talk about what first part of the wall they built that is symbolic of worship. And that's where our restoration comes. If you've been away from the Lord, that's where you need to come to. You don't just walk back into where you were saying everything's fine. You need to go find the spot that puts you off the track and get back on track at that spot. And to have that happen, it's a spiritual restoration. It's not just a physical one. It's not just the circumstances. 
It's not the details. It's not just saying, okay, well, I'm going to get back to reading my Bible and I'm going to get back to going to meetings again. Those things are important. But it starts in the heart. And until the people's hearts were right with God, that they understood that God was sovereign and that their responsibility was just to Him, there was no point building a wall or building a temple. It wasn't going to change a thing. It's still the same God. Yes, there were some of the old guard that saw the new temple and said, oh, oh, if you'd only seen the old one. And that still happens today, right? Well, when I was a kid, you know, back in the day, eh, you're like when we had our Yosemite conference, yeah, we filled the whole valley. You know? uh, and, and, and it's not to say that it's bad to look back at those things. Because those were glorious days. I mentioned the zenith. Politically speaking, of the nation of Israel was clearly in the time of Solomon. Spiritually, likely in the time of David. Because David rallied them together like no one else could. And they still called Jerusalem the city of David. Because their allegiance was to him. And of course to the Lord. But the, it was the, still the same Lord. And this temple was special. Number four, we've talked a little bit about it today. Opposition, uh, by, uh, opposition to the work of the Lord. There's a whole... Uh, sub-marriage theme here we haven't had time to get to, but there was all sorts of opposition. In particular for those who were intermarried, the Samaritans always have a very interesting history uh, with the people of God. Of course, when you say Samaria, people always think of the story of the Good Samaritan. It was a beautiful story, which adds that much depth to the story when you read about the history of it. You know, And the Jews came to hate the Samaritans so much, they wouldn't dare even want to to step in their land, or if a Samaritan walked by me on a sunny day like this, I wouldn't even retain the spit that was in my mouth. I'd want to get rid of it. So how ironic that this person that falls amongst thieves and is left for half dead at the side of the road was likely taking a road to avoid the Samaritans. And lo and behold, a Samaritan comes along and patches him up and puts him on his personal ambulance and brings him to the emergency department where he had an account going. <laughs> do you know anybody else like that? Do you know anybody else taking a path, going away from the only one who can help them? Do you know anyone else who is purposely trying to take a path to get away from God and finds themselves in the very hands of God rescued at the end of the day? It's me. Praise God for our good Samaritan. But we saw their strategy. Sometimes, they, as I showed, they pretended to help. They discouraged them. They troubled them. They hired lobbyists, as I mentioned. And the work was halted. But thankfully, the Lord's people were uh, ministered to again. We haven't time today to talk about Haggai and Zechariah and others. But it wasn't the king's letter that ultimately motivated the people of God. That was just the trigger. What motivated the people of God was the Spirit of God Himself. And you know what? The opposition never ended. Don't ever think that you've arrived spiritually. Oh, I've come so far that I'm never going to have opposition again. Right to the very end of this book and right through until today, there's opposition until the very end. And then lastly, uh, lesson, major theme number five, spiritual and secular activity together. We've uh, made mention of this again already, but how marvelous that his work, Ezra's work, was a mix of spiritual and secular. And I encouraged you yesterday, and I said to the young people last night even, I said, you know, don't think of your spiritual activity as being your spiritual life and the rest of your work being your secular life. Everything we do, we do is unto the Lord. 
When you're an ambassador, you're not just an ambassador when you go to a formal ambassadorial function. You're ambassador 24-7, no matter where you are and what you're doing. And we're ambassadors for Christ. And the Lord help us to see that, oh, I've paid my dues this week. You know, I went to meeting and I, I put something in the offering and I prayed for these people at prayer meeting. That's kind of my spiritual due. Now let me go off and do my own thing. That's not how it works. We've been bought with a price. We're His. And we want to do everything we do. No matter where the Lord places you. No matter how unglorious you think your job might be. You're a servant of the Lord. That's your real occupation. And the Lord help us to be more like Ezra. Because they had a very successful journey for God. And the temple was rebuilt. And of course we'll move tomorrow to think a little bit more about Nehemiah. And how it was more than just a temple. They needed to build their security. They needed to build the walls. They needed to bring the people back. And that's indeed what uh, we'll see in the context of Nehemiah. Let's quickly pray. Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to be here today, to enjoy this absolutely stunning background, to appreciate the wonders of God. Father, it humbles us when we see men like Ezra and Zerubbabel, And how, despite opposition, despite discouragement, despite mockery, they persisted. And they knew that their mission was to serve the living God of heaven. Father, we serve the same God. Help us to see that. Help us to want to be students of the Word of God the way Ezra was. That he could read and see that indeed the the captivity was coming to an end. Well, Father, had you not seen it? Perhaps they would never have had the return that they did. Father, help us today to see and claim the promises of God. That we would see souls saved. That we would see the church built up. That we would be an expectant bride for our bridegroom who comes and may even come today. Father, bless us. We're encouraged to be here. Encourage us for the rest of this day in our Savior's name. Amen.